Hey everyone, it's Jacqueline Melanick. Welcome to Chain Reaction, a show that unpacks and dives deep into the latest trends, drama, and news with some of the biggest names in crypto, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. For this week's Chain Reaction news segment, we are diving into Bitcoin spot ETFs or exchange-traded funds. As usual, a lot has transpired since our last news episode. The former FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried had his bail revoked, Coindesk cut staffing by 16%, and recent records showed that WorldCoin ignored initial orders to stop iris scans in Kenya. But as I mentioned, we are talking about spot Bitcoin ETFs, which have recently got a lot of attention in the crypto community and have been a focus for a number of years. And this week, we saw the Jacobi Asset Management listing Europe's first Bitcoin spot ETF almost two years after its initial approval. Meanwhile, the U.S. SEC recently delayed deadlines for Bitcoin spot ETF applications. So... America's kind of running on its own timeline. We have Eric Balchunas here. He's a senior ETF analyst at Bloomberg and TechCrunch Plus editor-in-chief Alex Wilhelm to get into it. And the reason I brought Alex on was due to his undying love for investment products and crypto more generally. He's been covering the space for about a decade. And Eric is literally a plethora of informational wealth on this front. He's written a book on ETFs and co-hosts Bloomberg's Trillions podcast and their ETF IQ show. So enough about that. Anyways, Eric and Alex, welcome to the show. Hell yeah. I'm excited about this. We have like the <laughs> expert here. Great to be here. Yeah. All right. Awesome. <laughs> so to start, Eric, what is going on in the Bitcoin ETF world and how is this kind of impacting the U.S. crypto market? Well, there already are Bitcoin futures ETFs, but they don't have much in assets, about a, a billion. And one of them dominates Bitto. So that does exist. But the spot is the holy grail. Spot Bitcoin ETF mm -hmm. is major advisors who are the biggest users of ETFs, they just like it physical. You know, there are gold futures, there were gold futures ETFs, but they went extinct because everybody just gravitated towards the physically backed gold ETF. So gold ETFs now have 100 billion, gold futures have none. So that should tell you that if Bitto has a billion, you know, you're looking at many billions probably in the physical spot. And so it's a huge race in the ETF market. The winner usually takes most, sometimes all. Like Bitto has 95, 97% of the assets and like 98% of the assets amongst Bitcoin futures ETFs. So the stakes are high. There's nine to 10 people in the race, 10 if you count Grayscale, who is basically suing the SEC. That's part of the story. But the big, big variable was BlackRock filing like two months ago. Right. So you got BlackRock, VanEck, ARK, and a host of others. And all of them are seeking SEC approval. And they've all sort of introduced this new novel thing. Well, BlackRock introduced it, which is a surveillance sharing agreement with Coinbase. This, they hope, will satisfy the SEC's concern about fraud or manipulation. And if it does, again, the question is, will they approve it? When will they approve it? And how many will they approve at once? Like, will one get out first or many? And this is the stuff we're covering. So right now, we're at about a 65% odds that the SEC will approve one or more by the end of the year. And then if we go out next year, you know, the odds sort of slowly go up because, again, everything's evolving towards that. But timing is hard. This is about trying to figure out Gary Gensler's brain. Um, but when one is approved, look, I don't think it's going to completely change the face of crypto. I think what it does is just offers a portal for a big lump of money that largely would not probably deal with Bitcoin that might now. And that would be the $30 trillion that financial advisors manage in America. And they manage a lot of the boomers' money. And they are boomers themselves. And boomers have almost all the money in America. So if you could look at the ETF as a bridge from the boomer pot of money to crypto, not 
everybody's going to cross that bridge, but certainly opening it up, you're going to find some traffic there. Yeah, I think bringing more ETFs, especially Bitcoin spot ones, would bring liquidity to the crypto market and kind of like those boomers that you mentioned. But when we have these major institutions like BlackRock filing applications for this investment vehicle, how is that kind of impacting the needle? You said there's a 65% chance of this happening this year. Why is it more leaning that way compared to the past? Yeah, well, we were at 1% before BlackRock filed. (laughs) All right, So. (laughs) <laughs> BlackRock, I mean, look, they don't play. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a different company. This is Larry Fink. This is the biggest asset manager in the world. They run $10 trillion. They are just a company that is always very close to regulators, very close to the government. These are is a major player in America. Mm-hmm. And they like to win. And they like to bring a gun to a knife fight. They are just that kind of company. So when they filed, it was like, whoa. And they added NASDAQ in there, who had never been in a filing before, and Coinbase. So our theory is that NASDAQ, Coinbase, because remember, Coinbase lists on NASDAQ. Our theory is that BlackRock, NASDAQ, and Coinbase all sort of got together and said, Coinbase is willing to work with regulators. They could be the exchange that makes the SEC comfortable, and they're willing to share any information with NASDAQ that could be fraud or manipulation. And that was a big, important reason for the denial. So I think BlackRock saw a real good chance here. Now, remember, BlackRock is also trying to make money. Mm -hmm. And if you have a spot Bitcoin ETF and you're first out, you're probably going to make some good revenue because GLD to this day is the fourth most revenue generating ETF. After 20 years, it's still in the top five. And if you are the one that's liquid, you have pricing power. That liquidity is really powerful. And so it would be a revenue generator for BlackRock. So I see why they're interested. Um, and then Larry Fink going on Fox Business and basically like touting Bitcoin like two weeks after this filing was another reassurance that Larry signed off on this filing and he may even drove it. And so I think that's really important information. There's other reasons we're in the 65% realm, but I would, I would give BlackRock a lion's share of that credit. A couple of things have happened. I won't go into the details unless you want me to, but you know, BlackRock had a vision. And also, we on the team have felt that this year, there's been a lot of evolution on crypto. There's been TradFi, other companies doing different things. And so the post-FTX world sort of looks like it's going to have traditional finance in it. And it totally survived FTX and then some. And so again, Bitcoin has had this you know real resiliency that I think has impressed just about everybody at this point. And so It's that kind of evolution and maturation, I think, of especially Bitcoin. I know crypto is a whole different scene, but especially Bitcoin that I think BlackRock sees as the time is right now. So Eric, GLD has an expense ratio of 0.4%. I just looked that up. And I'm curious, do you expect the eventual BlackRock Bitcoin spot ETF to have a roughly similar expense profile to that? Or is it going to be in a different range? Our guess is 70 to 80 basis points to start. Okay. Because... There's a relativity here. It, the GBTC is 2%. So I think BlackRock does some calculus and says, well, and Bitto is 95 basis points. Might even be 98. Anyway, it's over 90. So BlackRock's probably going to do calculus and go, how much can we get away with and still make it look like it's inexpensive? And I think they'll go 70, maybe 65. I think there's also some other costs with custody that are higher than gold. Yeah, I have to check into that, but I believe that's one of the reasons it could be a little higher than GLD. But over time... Believe me, let's say BlackRock is the one that everybody trades and it's liquid and some people are going to value that. They don't care the fee. Someone's going to come out with a cheap one like Vanek or somebody and they're going to go, okay, well, for us to be different, we're going to be cheap. We'll be 30. 
over time, and that may force BlackRock to lower its fees. We've seen this happen in every category of ETFs. Regardless of the opening expense ratio, there will be an immediate fee war and fee compression that will take place over three to four years. So right now with gold, I believe the cheapest one is 15 basis points. And even Spider launched a mini-me of GLD that's cheap. So BlackRock may launch a mini-me Bitcoin one that's cheap. So if you're looking for low cost, you'll find it soon, regardless of what the first ones come out at. That would be my read on that. Yeah, so the reason I ask is I'm trying to figure out how much demand a spot ETF for Bitcoin could unlock that we currently don't see in the Bitcoin space. And the higher the fee structure, the less attractive it will be as opposed to just buying and self-custodying. So I'm trying to figure out how much of an inflow context we could expect from this. Because, Eric, my understanding is when you have a, a futures ETF, or essentially something in that area, it's a synthetic bet versus owning the asset itself. Whereas a spot ETF, the trust holder, BlackRock, will have to actually hold Bitcoin itself. So as more money it flows into that, there's greater overall demand for Bitcoin itself. So I'm just trying to figure out how, where demand will flow and then kind of in what context. But that cost structure doesn't sound onerous to me. So it sounds like the door will be open for demand. Yeah, certainly. And this, for an advisor, this wouldn't be their main part of their portfolio. This would be like hot sauce, like a small <laughs> waiting on top. And we've seen in ETF land that advisors will pay up more for hot sauce, whereas they go real cheap in the core. So if you're only doing 1%, you're going to have less fee sensitivity, especially if it's something that can go up in a hurry. Yeah. Like I think Bitcoin's up about like 70% this year. That's going to really like lighten you up in terms of how much it costs. So that's that one thing. The other thing is GBTC at its peak had $40 billion. It charges 2% and it's not even an ETF. It doesn't track the price of Bitcoin and it trades on no major exchanges. Think about that. So if it was able to get that much with that, think about a BlackRock branded SEC approved 65 basis point product, you could you could just imagine that would be very palatable relative to GBTC. So you know, the cheaper it gets, probably the more you know that helps the cause. But I don't know if cost is as important here as it would be for an S&P 500 ETF, where you have to be like really dirt cheap to get any bids now. The other thing is, it's only going to charge one basis point to trade it. This is an underrated quality of the ETF that I think this is where Coinbase even though they're teaming up with TradFi, an ETF could hurt their business a little because the ETF will charge you one basis point per trade. I mean, think about it. That's basically free. Yeah. Check out any other exchange, especially for a small investor. You're going to pay a lot more than that. And this is part of why people like ETFs. They're cheap to trade. So for example, ETFs only make up, they only own about 8% of the stock market, but they make up about 20, 23% of all equity trading. So people love to trade ETFs because they cost one basis point. It's also anonymous. Nobody knows who's trading it. So institutions may even be attracted to a liquid spot Bitcoin ETF the way they are with GLD in terms of it just being an easy way to get exposure as with any crypto exchanges or crypto itself or you know do the cold storage and have to remember 12 words for the rest of your life or whatever. I think the convenience factor here for a most normal people, the ETF will, will provide that as it has in other asset classes. In lieu of the Bitcoin spot ETF, what have institutions been getting exposure through? Institutions probably are going to, I mean, Coinbase has an institutional or pro feature, and I think Mm -hmm. it's cheaper there. I think you can get Bitcoin through Fidelity. That's probably how they're doing it. I know there's some like like on-ramp and these other services that will like just do it for you. And these may certainly stay in business. I think the ETF is probably more additive. I think if anything, the ETF might draw from the crypto exchanges themselves a little. Mm-hmm. Because remember, an ETF would essentially bring the crypto exchanges onto the regular exchanges because you could use New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ 
or any brokerage account to basically trade crypto. And that portability is also underrated. So again, we've seen them with GLD. An institution could buy gold bars if they wanted to. You know, it's not that hard. But they just like GLD. It's a ticker. It's liquid. It's on an exchange. They can go in and make a big trade in it and not move the market much either. And nobody notices them. There's no impact costs. That's why whoever's liquid, the, the liquid one, is going to be really powerful because liquidity begets liquidity. And all of a sudden, you're trading two, three billion dollars a day. And that's going to attract big fish. So even the world's largest hedge funds like Bridgewater, they will use SPY and GLD and some of these ETFs if they need access quick. And so I think institutions, some of them, will be attracted to the liquidity and the anonymity that an ETF would provide versus buying it on their own or setting up an account at a different exchange. This ETF fits into the plumbing of all professional investors, I think, easier than buying Bitcoin on the side or through an exchange, like through a crypto exchange. Yeah, I'd like to throw this to Alex. I see him nodding and uh, I see his gears turning. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on all of this and like, how do you see this playing into the future and the current present or what Eric has to say even? I mean, the the idea that it's so cheap to buy into Bitcoin using this potential investment product and to trade it makes it just seem so attractive and easy to use that I can do it inside of my Fidelity account. And that to me is crazy because if I ever tried to tell my parents, okay, hey, you know, getting closer to retirement, let's take a look at your portfolio. All right, now we're going to make a Coinbase account. Now here's your seed phrase. They're going to laugh at me and walk away. But if I say, you know, you need 1% hot sauce in your portfolio overall, why don't you allocate X to this, uh, you know, iShares yeah. ETF. <laughs> Everyone loves hot sauce. I can actually see it happening. So while I've been skeptical for a long time that institutional money is suddenly going to fire into the crypto world via any avenue towards any particular asset. In this case, I really can see that working out. The thing that I'm now confused about is if it's one BIP to trade this ETF when it does eventually come out, is Coinbase by supporting it effectively undermining its own trading business, which has historically been its largest revenue driver? Because if this is as liquid as Eric says it might become, then I would never use Coinbase proper. I would just use this ETF. And... Coinbase must have done the math internally, but to me, that's a dangerous proposition given their revenue mix. Yeah, ETFs are powerful. They are disruptors because they're cheap, liquid, tax efficient. I wrote a whole book on them back in 2014, and I dedicated my career to them. I mean, I, I saw ETFs. I got ETFs as a data assignment in 2006, and I had covered mutual funds in the late 90s as a reporter, and I was like, holy moly, these things are like five evolutionary steps beyond the mutual fund. They're going to be a big deal. So I, I became an expert in all ETFs in the late 2000s, and I felt like a wave was going to break. This must be what crypto people felt like uh, <laughs> 10 years ago too. But And it did. ETFs have done that. And you know, it's interesting. You know, Crypto, I think, sees itself as a disruptor, but I think ETFs are equally as disruptive because of the reasons I mentioned. In my book, I have a, the first chapter looks at the advantages of ETFs, and, and there's like 12. You know, everything from low cost to flexibility. You can short an ETF, right? It's very easy to short them. There's options on ETFs. They're tax efficient. Like I said, they're anonymous to trade. They're liquid. You can trade whenever you want during the day. They're convenient. You know, they package everything up and they standardize everything. This is underrated advantage of ETFs. The way a US, like a USB port, you know, you can use that on almost any computer. Standardization is important. So an ETF makes everything trade like a stock. And everybody likes the way stocks trade. Bonds are opaque market. No one likes to deal there. Uh, you know, the futures market's a whole different thing. ETFs wrap up oil futures, physical gold, bonds, 
Chinese local shares, mm-hmm. and you just click a button on the exchange and you own that. And so they've standardized every single asset class that you can think of. They've even packaged active strategies so or even packaged trades. Some ETFs go long this, short this, use options, and it all trades like shares of Microsoft, which is the way people like to build and manage a portfolio. So that standardization is also, I think, an interesting benefit. So again, ETFs continue to grow and take in the lion's share of the flows for all of those reasons. And I think they're going to disrupt Bitcoin exchanges a little bit. I don't know how much, but I think Coinbase could make it up in other ways. Again, if you're teaming up with BlackRock and their institutional business and whatnot, you're probably benefiting in other ways. It's probably a calculated gamble on their part yeah. to be this company that sort of works with traditional finance the most. But I don't know the inner workings of that. But I'm certainly an ETF, I will say, is going to threaten, especially the trading aspect of these crypto exchanges, simply because one BIP is going to be a powerful, low-cost alternative. I think it's also just worth acknowledging that trading volumes have been down across the board for all exchanges. And we've seen Coinbase like diversify their revenue streams like through subscription services, other areas that you mentioned. So ETFs, while it's a threat, I don't think this is something they're not anticipating. Yeah, I think that's very fair. I want to squeeze in one last small one, Eric. So one thing that I am aware of is that there has been some pushback against index funds as an investment category, that they're almost too passive or that they lead to distortions in the market based on what's in versus what's not in them. And as someone who loves a zero-cost index fund, because I'm cheap, I'm curious if any of that kind of like intellectual pushback against index funds in general might spill over into the ETF world and therefore impact market demand for a Bitcoin spot ETF. Or am I crossing wires, as it were? No. I mean, like, in other words, this whole idea of like the passive bubble, as like some people put it, Never is that argument including GLD or gold. That's usually an argument at the stock market. People are like, is the tail wagging the dog? Like, is index funds, are they distorting market and making price discovery harder? My answer to that is index funds plus ETFs, index mutual funds plus ETFs that are on the equity side collectively own maybe about, you know, 18, 19% of the stock market. So they certainly have an effect. Most of those investors, though, don't ever do anything. They're very buy and hold oriented. So if anything, they have maybe made there's less people trading, uh-huh. which means you could have more volatility if there's just less people trading. But overall, remember like 20 years ago, I remember the rap on individual investors was their behavior was awful. They would buy the hot mutual fund at the top and then it inevitably go down and they sell and their behavior caused them all kinds of problems. Well, along comes Bogle and Vanguard and they make cheap index funds and people are like, this is perfect. I'm never trading again. This is the best deal in town. And now people are kind of like complaining that they're not trading. And I don't know, you, you can't ever satisfy everybody, but I always am a big sniff test guy. If you look at a stock and it has like an earnings that's like awful, that stock's going to go down in a hurry. We've seen it many times, even though the stock is in a bunch of index funds. So as long as like stocks are moving on good or bad earnings or relative information like the CEO leaving, I'm fine with it. I mean, again, if, if that stopped happening, that would be worrisome because you, you do want stocks to be priced relatively correctly. But I always tell people index funds are simply riding in the backseat of a car that active players are driving. Because like if the S&P 500, you know, active managers love Tesla, right? So over eight, nine years, Tesla grew in price, grew in market cap, and then it was eligible for the S&P. Now, if Tesla is none like by active, they're going to sell it and it will eventually get kicked out. So the S&P is merely a, a mirror or it's mimicking what active managers are doing in terms of bidding up and down stocks. So in a way, indexing is freeloading off of that active behavior. Bitcoin is a whole different scene, wouldn't be part of this conversation at all, in my opinion. You know, if anything, I think the question that might come up with this is, well, what if there's an FTX? 
how would that affect Bitcoin prices and the ETF and whatnot? And, you know, there are plenty of spot Bitcoin ETFs in Canada and Australia and Europe, and they just move through FTX fine. There are other exchanges the market makers could use. The percent premium and discount moved a little more than average because obviously there's one place that liquidity dried up and there's volatility. But overall, they did a fine job. And we I've studied them because, again, this was a big test case. How did they perform? So the good news about a spot Bitcoin ETF is we already know that they'll work. They've worked in other countries. Mm-hmm. The one in Sweden is like eight years old at this point. So there's been an incubator to provide us good analysis of what would happen in different either good markets, bad markets, or like an FTX scandal kind of situation. Yeah, Eric, I'm glad you brought up the other Bitcoin ETFs that exist out there, because I think to wrap things up, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what do you think is next for Bitcoin spot ETFs? And what other news or parts of this sector are you watching that you think we should be following? Yeah, I think the next big thing is the grayscale versus SEC decision could come as early as Friday. They're now past 160 days, which is the norm mm-hmm. for announcing these decisions. So we're now in like an outlier minority time period. That doesn't say they have to do it, but as it gets further, you get more into a minority in terms of when they normally announce them. So I think we'll hear soon on Grayscale, probably within the next, I guess, couple weeks. Mm. Right. That's huge. If Grayscale wins, that's just more egg on the face of the SEC. It makes not approving it more politically untenable. And we do put a lot of politics into our calculus. Gensler, if he feels the pressure that, you know, I kind of have to approve it. And then he's going to be able to look, you know, try to convert it into a win. You know, hey, I gave it to BlackRock or the adults in the room are now, you know, helping us out. I just think that's really a big part of our calculus. Also, Coinbase becoming more aligned with regulators. All this is good news for that. But again, it really comes down to him. If it's a shock where the SEC wins that probably will lower our odds a little bit. So this decision is pretty important. And then moving on after that, we look for just other bits of information. I get a lot of back-channel information. That's how we were so confident on the Ether futures. But back-channel can be shaky. You know, some people are biased. They have ulterior motives. So we have to really filter out the back-channel information we get. But we certainly think the Ether futures approvals are an important step because they had made them withdraw like five straight times before. And so that is a policy shift. So it shows that they can change and they're in that direction of changing towards this approval. I thought they should have approved one 10 years ago. I mean, this is so dumb to be. Things take time. You know, kind of. (laughs) Yeah, I mean. Too much time, perhaps. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe at least three, four years ago. Right. I just think the ETF would help their cause of bringing the biggest, smartest, richest market makers are going to start touching these exchanges because they're going to need Bitcoin to satisfy the ETF demand. They're going to like not deal with shady characters. So just by by having them in the market and wanting a piece of their action, you're going to have to unshady yourself to deal with them. So I have theorized that if the ETF had been out there, a lot of people could have been saved from FTX because they would have used the ETF instead. And the market makers probably would have sniffed out some shadiness before we even knew about it. So I think the ETF acts a little bit like a watchdog simply because the market makers aren't going to deal with you. If something's wrong, if there's like smoke, maybe there's fire. So I just think the ETF acts as a cleansing force in a way. So that's why I always thought the regulators should have been for this way earlier. But obviously, you know, the different people have different views on this. Yeah, for sure. All right. Awesome. Well, Eric, Alex, thank you for joining me today. And thank you to everyone for listening in. Great to be here. Thank you. We'll be back next week with conversations around what's going on in the wild world of Web3 with top players in the crypto ecosystem. 
You can keep up with us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite pod platform and subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction. Links to the newsletter and stories we talked about can be found in our show notes. And be sure to follow us at Chain underscore Reaction on Twitter. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Jacqueline Melanick, and produced by Maggie Stamets, with assistance from Yashad Kulkarni and editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and Henry Picavet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks for listening in. See you next time.